Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Welcome, fellow Regenerators. This is the sixth installment in my coverage of Regeneration, and I'm beginning to understand that this is just the beginning. I decided this week to rename the byline of my show from Care More Be Better, a social impact and sustainability podcast, to Care More Be Better, social impact, sustainability, and regeneration now. The now at the end may give you an inkling that this, all of this, is a call to action. We must change how we do this thing called living to regenerate our social systems and earth. It's time. If you're just discovering this podcast and the Regeneration series, I encourage you to go back to my first coverage of this topic. The Friday before I would interview Paul Hawken on this book, I recorded a seven-minute mini-sode introducing the topic. From there, we had the interview of Paul Hawken himself, followed by this series, which is a deep dive into his new book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. It's already a New York Times bestseller, and I am thrilled that I may have played some small part in its success, because it really is an activist guidebook for how to reverse global warming. Understand this, though, Paul Hawken and Regeneration.org do not back this podcast. I'm doing this of my own free will because I believe deeply in the principles it espouses. Okay, getting back to it. In part one, we dove into oceans. Then in part two, we wandered through the forests. With part three, we explored Nexus, the activist tool showcased on Regeneration.org, the website that accompanies his book. In part four, we explored all things wild. And with part five, we covered land and finally discussed the topic of regenerative agriculture. This week, in part six, we're going to talk about people. I want to speak for a moment about uncovering your own prejudices and prejudgment. As I begin today's coverage of regeneration, it's Indigenous Peoples Day. So as we get started, I invite you to reflect on your knowledge of Indigenous people around the world. How do you see them? Do you think of Native Americans, or are you drawn to visions of the first people of the Amazon rainforests, aboriginals of Australia, or even Pacific Islanders? Do you think back to childhood games like Cowboys and Indians or the old Westerns that you used to watch? I imagine in some way we all do. It comes from the stories we're told and a general lack of exposure to the reality that was. It's almost impossible to really see the truth behind the watered-down origin stories of people that are now mostly gone. But that doesn't mean that we should stop trying. We have a lot to learn from the Indigenous people that remain today. The topics we'll cover today include indigeneity, clean cooking, eradicating food deserts, and we'll even revisit the role you can play in being a good steward of wild land. As we cover each topic, think about what you know and what you might need to unlearn or unknow. Here are some of the general thoughts that swam through my head as I read through this chapter. For my undergraduate degree, I explored the world of anthropology. It started with cultures and got more scientific as I gravitated towards the harder science of human origin. I loved thinking about a time when we inhabited the same space as our not-too-distant relatives, the Neanderthal. I enjoyed looking at the hard evidence of what was left behind, rather than relying on oral histories or written stories of what was. 
It felt like somehow the evidence could be more true if it was left behind in some tangible physical presence that was uncolored by perspective. But in thinking that way, what I didn't realize is that I was closing myself to the knowledge that was provided from those stories, negating the importance of oral traditions. The knowledge that is passed from grandparent to parent to child, from elders to their communities, is critically important to our survival and to regenerating Earth. And if you read Jane All's book, The Clan of the Cave Bear series, you may recall that she depicted Neanderthals having a sort of genetic memory, a knowledge of what was other than what they learned during their living days. They used ceremony and the spirits as guides to work through their biggest challenges and know the unknowable. Really, how they were shaped in her books was a not-too-subtle nod to nations of indigenous Americans. Looking at those very books today, it's so very easy to see all the prejudice wrapped in them. She depicted the Neanderthal as other, and while other isn't necessarily bad, the Neanderthal were portrayed as having less creativity and less industriousness than their European counterparts, the very same way that colonists saw first people all over the globe. It's the age-old story of conquest. By othering a group of people, we de-emphasize our humanity, which can lead to some pretty awful consequences. Mousing around today, I saw photographs from a protest. A man of African descent held a sign that said simply, Colonialism is indigenous genocide. How sad and how very true. So how do we unlearn to see indigenous people as other? How do we learn to see the value of their generational knowledge with the same gravity as scientists and globalists who have built our modern world? How do we get to a place where we value the contribution of people like Nemonte Nenkimo as much or more than Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos? I know some of us do, but far too few. So with that, I'll share why Nemonte Nenkimo is a name that should be on your lips. Say her name with me. Nemonte, Nemonte Ninkimo. She is a member of the traditional Waurani community who dwell in the lowlands of eastern Ecuador. She was initially educated in a missionary school, but rebelled and became an activist, co-founding the indigenous-led Cebo Alliance. Under her leadership, they succeeded in thwarting the oil exploration plans of half a million acres of Amazonian rainforest in 2019, when a three-judge panel in Ecuador ruled in her favor. She wrote a letter to nine leaders, featured in Regeneration. This letter began, quote, My message to the Western world, your civilization is killing life on Earth, end quote. Her chilling and descriptive prose begs us to rethink the lies we've been told. This is from page 123. When you say that our oil companies have marvelous new technologies that can sip the oil from beneath our land like hummingbirds sip nectar from a flower— we know that you are lying because we live downriver from the spills. When you say that the Amazon is not burning, we do not need satellite images to prove you wrong. We are choking on the smoke of the fruit orchards that our ancestors planted centuries ago. When you say that you are urgently looking for climate solutions, yet continue to build a world economy based on extraction and pollution, we know you are lying because we are the closest to the land and the first to hear her cries. End quote. What does this simple story she shares tell us about our own prejudices? Think of that phrase again. We are choking on the smoke of the fruit orchards that our ancestors planted centuries ago. 
When colonizers first landed on the coasts of North America and South America, they thought the land they, quote, discovered was untended. They held in their hands papal decrees that came from the 15th century, known as the Doctrine of Discovery, which laid the foundation for flag planting all over the globe by Christian monarchs. This enabled them to justify the harms against the people in the lands they discovered, from taking their land by force or coercion to introducing disease and cutting down their ancient forests. Colonists took for granted that the new world they saw was wild, and that so too were the inhabitants who they saw as mere brutes. They saw these people as lacking in culture and decency. The colonists mingled tribes with little regard for their difference, introduced disease that wiped out entire populations, and ignored the wisdom of indigenous people. They couldn't see and didn't understand that these so-called brutes had acted as a stewards of abundant forests, orchards, and grasslands, because these lands were the source of their food. It was easy to overlook because they tended the natural world with finesse rather than a plow, with complex understanding of how plants coexisted and complemented one another, rather than growing single crops and rows and plots that would be visible for miles. With this perspective, let's dive into the essay, The Forest as a Farm, by Lila June Johnston. For those following along with the book, jump to page 125. Quote, People who moved in 3,000 years ago radically changed the way the land looked and tasted. These are anthropogenic or human-made foodscapes where inhabitants would shape the land in a non-dominating and gentle way. End quote. In Regeneration, we learn that the hand that managed these ecosystems often used fire as a tool to clear underbrush. They would architect their forests and their grasslands using carefully timed fires. I live in Santa Cruz County, and this essay seemed as though it had been written just for me. Lila tells us of the Amamatsun Nation, indigenous people who called Santa Cruz, California their home. They tended the rolling landscapes that abutted the ocean, the rolling hills of chaparral and darker, deeper redwood forests, and they used fire to clear underbrush and keep the land productive. It's no accident that the oak and redwood trees each have fire-repellent bark. They co-evolved with us. And here I'll quote Lila June Johnston's essay, The Forest as a Farm. Quote, According to elders, the Amamatsun cut down the low-hanging branches annually because they could catch fire. In the fall, they would gather the fallen leaves and burn a circle around the oak trees. They blessed the tree with the smoke, which would go into the leaves and inhibit or prevent tree disease. The bugs would fall into the fire, ensuring a healthier acorn crop. The competing saplings would be killed off so that only the hardiest and strongest plants would survive. End quote. By tending the forests, managing new competitive growth, and limiting underbrush, the devastating fires we see today would be far less likely. By timing the burns with the seasons, as we discussed in our coverage of forests in part two of the series, we limit the damage fire can do. She closes the essay with an invitation to see things differently. Quote, Instead of cutting down a forest to make room for a farm, realize that the forest is already a farm. If you know how to take care of it, it will make food for you, better than any monocrop. And if it's not a farm when you find it, then delicately, respectfully, and carefully turn it into a farm. Don't cut it down. End quote. As we shift from this perspective piece, we dig back into the many solutions that rest at our feet, and some of the social changes we'll need to make to ensure a healthy future for our planet. Not only should we look to our land and our use of it, but also who gets to tend it. 
Did you know that globally, nine out of 10 countries have laws that impede a woman's ability to support her own livelihood? This extends from land ownership limitations to no access to loans. It means that her ability to provide for her family is severely hampered. She relies on the men in her life. And we need her to be a part of the change. The Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations has even reported that women farmers have crop yields that are 20 to 30 percent higher than those of men, which has the potential to reduce malnutrition 12 to 17 percent around the globe. This makes it painfully clear that we need to overhaul our approach to farming. We need to shift from the male-dominated and extractive agriculture that is commonplace today to one that is more community-led and integrates regenerative practices. Thankfully, the tide is shifting. In the United States, between 97 and 2017, the number of women-led farms increased from 209,000 to 766,000. Here's one example. Leah Penniman of Soul Fire Farm near Albany, New York. She invested in a few acres with community support, built up the soil with regenerative farming practices, and now serves a community in what she names not a food desert, but a food apartheid. Here's why. Quote, it makes clear that we have a human-created system of segregation that relegates certain groups to food opulence and prevents others from accessing life-giving nourishment. End quote. You see, 24 million Americans live in so-called food deserts, or rather food apartheids. In these spots, it's difficult to get fresh food, and the people who live in them are dominantly minorities. White neighborhoods have four times the grocery stores of black neighborhoods. People may lack the transportation they need to conveniently get to the healthier food they want. Leah's farm now provides nutritious produce, eggs, and chicken to people who otherwise would not have access. They remove barriers like transportation and income by providing produce on a sliding scale and dropping off boxes directly at the homes of their customers. They even accept government benefits as payment, including the Federal Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP. Quote, we can now feed 80 to 100 families, many of whom would not otherwise have access to life-giving food. One member told us recently that their family would be eating only boiled pasta if it were not for this veggie box, end quote. And I really skipped over something because I wanted you to think of the marvel of work that Leah is creating without getting into a deep discussion of race. Leah Penniman is a mixed race black woman. She is working hard to shift thinking and knowledge within and about black communities. She invites us to understand, to learn that black people have always been leaders in the sustainable agricultural movement. From George Washington Carver of Tuskegee University in Alabama, he is actually the American pioneer of regenerative agriculture, to Booker T. Watley, another Tuskegee professor. Their stories are inspirational, and they haven't been told as much as they need to be. And the reality is, by telling them, we will inspire more people. If we can see these Black pioneers of early regenerative community practices as the leaders that they are, we can shift from white male extractive farming practices to something so much more. We need diversity, we need equity, and we need all hands on deck. We need also for it not to be exclusively the white male's role to lead farms around the United States. As we move through the rest of this chapter, we hear echoes of continued reinforcement about everything we've learned thus far, the role people play in regenerating ecosystems and reversing global warming, 
Each page provides more inspiration, from cleaning our cookstove methods and reducing our carbon footprint, therefore, to providing access for education to all girls around the globe. We are called to act in any way we can. And then we get to talk a bit more about one of my favorite topics, wilding. Mary Reynolds, who is a renowned landscaper and gardener from Wexford, Ireland, invites us to acknowledge the life forms we live among. She begs us to eliminate invasive species and reintroduce and restore native plants. This from a landscaper and designer who's typically paid to manicure a garden. She asks us to let the grasses grow long and the weeds to seed, because with that move, by tending nature gently and reintroducing native plants mindfully, we heal earth. We increase biodiversity. As she closes her essay on page 140, it's time for human beings to step up and learn to become the weavers of the web of life, to restitch the thread we have broken. Set your land free. Build an ark for life and your heart. End quote. This ask is one that resonates with me. We need to build an ark for life. One of the ways that we can do this is through our personal efforts, and another is through philanthropy. Paul Hawken closes this chapter with an essay by Ellen Dorsey, executive director of the Wallace Global Fund. Her essay, aptly titled Philanthropy Must Declare a Climate Emergency, lays out fundamental steps that can help us all. She asks philanthropists and not-for-profits to make climate central to their mission, to spend more, spend quickly, and spend it all, rather than holding on to the funds for a rainy day or padding their pockets. She begs us to aim for systemic change, not just small incremental shifts in our personal or professional lives, and encourages us to collaborate with, with movements in general. It's a thought-provoking essay on everything we can do a little better as we work to reverse global warming and promote life. Her perspective, and one that Paul Hawken also holds central, and just about every other climate activist I can think of, is that if we don't solve for climate change, we're kaput. We're finished. This is not to say that social activism is unimportant or unwarranted. We just need to keep marching forward, arm in arm, to reverse the harm that we've done. By working to be a part of this movement, the regeneration movement, we can and will solve social problems along the way. Regenerative farming practices, as a for instance, can solve for food deserts or food apartheid. Ensuring women have access to education and equal rights are part of the equation too, because we need all hands on deck to reverse global warming. We need to work together. Like it or not, we are one. We are a global community, and it's time to act like it. With this episode, we've cleared the halfway point of this book, and we've yet to cover the city, food, energy, industry, and action. I hope you'll stay with us as we continue our coverage, and I encourage y'all to share this with your community of activists and your community of friends. Heck, that's the way we make them into activists. This is really important work, and not everyone is a reader after all, so giving them something to listen to and 20-minute snips can be very helpful. So many of us are already working together, and now you're a part of that collaboration too. It's that time, isn't it? At the end of most of my shows, I invite each of you to act, and today, I'd love it if you would join our email list on caremorebebetter.com. That way, you'll stay abreast of upcoming content and activities around these topics. 
And consider sharing this regeneration series of podcasts that I'm doing with your community. It's such an important conversation. And if it wasn't already obvious, I'm giving it my all. If you value the content that we're creating, you can also donate funds to support the show. This will help us cover show costs so I can keep chugging without turning to any advertisers because I really want to keep this show pure. Visit caremorebebetter.com support for all the ways that you can support the show from buying eco-friendly swag to becoming a valued Patreon subscriber. There are tiers as low as just a couple bucks a month and every contribution helps along the way. Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and be better. We can regenerate earth. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 